So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. The letter to the church at Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter is perhaps the harshest of all the letters does have a little bit of positivity, uh, but that little tiny bit of positivity is basically saying, well, you're not all like this, but the church on the whole is identified by having the reputation of being alive. Now, the word translated reputation is actually, it exists three times in this text. Uh, in verse number four, we see it, yet you still, you have still a few names. The word translated reputation is the word for names. We also see it in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and will never blot his name out of the book of life. So here is a church with the reputation of being alive. Yet they're not actually alive. Now, think we are all prone to a level of complacency. There are things we care a lot about and we engage ourselves in caring for, but there are also things we don't really care about. I don't really care about car maintenance. Really don't like paying someone to work on my car, but I also even more don't like me working on my car and then ruining something and then needing some, to pay someone more to fix the thing that I ruined. So I tend to be quite complacent. And uh, in one of my vehicles, the, the front end had some issues with the suspension. Uh, I think tie rod end or something like that. It's Greek to me. More Greek than Greek is to me, to be honest. Uh, and the, the, the front end has these problems. And so, I mean, it's not really affecting how it drives. So that means you can just ignore it, right? As long as the car is running and moving, you don't need to worry about it. But what I've seen happen, because this front end problem uh, is that slowly but surely the outside of my tires have been wearing in right so the inside of my tires are in great shape the outside of my tires are kind of like racing tires the problem is that when we are complacent oftentimes there's more damage being done than what we even realize maybe some of you do the same thing with your teeth your teeth hurt but you hate the dentist and so you wait, and then eventually you can hate the dentist even more because they've got to pull the tooth or put a crown, and we can get complacent in our practical just daily living. Yet that same complacency also creeps into our spiritual lives. There are things that just aren't a priority to us. 
There are many ways in which I see this in my own life. There are, there are blind spots that I have. Things that I just kind of have developed over time and don't even think about. Things that I just, just pass over lightly. Things that I don't think about being a sin. But in reality, when confronted with the truth of God's word, I find out here's a sin that I've just completely ignored. Something I just haven't noticed. Sometimes it comes up uh, when I have kind of these spiritual calluses, calluses. These things that I knew were a sin when I started doing them, but I chose to keep doing them, and eventually my conscience is not bothered by the things which my conscience may have been bothered a year ago. And so these calluses develop in my spiritual life. Sometimes it's because my instincts lead me astray. You know, we often forget how influential the culture we are raised in is on our way of viewing the world. There are things that we think are just part of the normal life of the church that someone in China would think is just absolutely bizarre. Uh, or someone in Africa would think is just, just crazy. When you go to Africa and you see a perfect white church with a steeple, it's a good sign that there's some exported culture. There's nowhere in the Bible that churches are supposed to have uh, white siding and a steeple with a bell in it, yet we get this cultural mindset, and, and you might even hear someone say, I just, I don't like going to that church because I just don't feel like I'm at church because the building doesn't look like a church. Well, that is my culture speaking more strongly than the truth. What makes a church is not how it looks. What makes a church is, is what it does, how it functions, uh, its relationship to Christ. That's what makes a church. Sometimes complacency can come into my life through hopelessness. Maybe this is in the realm of evangelism. You ever feel like people just don't get saved anymore? Does that ever creep into your heart? And why bother evangelizing? They're just not going to like me and not believe. Whereas now they like me and don't believe. So why do I just want to change how they feel about me when they're not going to believe anyway? And we allow this complacency, this hardness, because we just feel hopeless. Parents, have you ever felt that way with your children? I have corrected this problem literally a thousand times. Why bother this time? We allow this complacency to develop within us. I know that's certainly true of me. I often forget the significance of the gospel. I am Christian as a demographic marker rather than a way of viewing my sin and my relationship with God. I'm simply someone who attends church on Sunday morning. I'm someone who checks that box if I'm filling out a survey, I am a Christian. But I often go through my life without thinking I am redeemed by the blood of Christ from my wicked sinful ways. And my Christianity can become merely just a demographic marker. I don't think this is a problem that's limited to me. I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with this. I think we are all probably united in our tendency to become complacent. How would the past week of your life have been different if you were not a Christian? What would you have done differently this week if you did not believe in Jesus? If the answer is nothing, you're probably kind of complacent. If, if just doing what comes naturally to you is all that is part of following Christ, then you are likely 
complacent. What means of spiritual growth that God has given to you have you decided aren't important? Now, of course, no one would say that. No one would say church attendance isn't important. No one would say prayer isn't important. No one would say that reading the Bible isn't important or evangelism isn't important or participating in the ordinances isn't important. We wouldn't say that, but how often do we show that we think that by ignoring it? We, we, we think, I, I read a, a tweet by a, a notable uh, Christian teacher this week. Uh, it was actually last week to mothers, saying, if Mother's Day is painful for you when you go to church, it is okay to stay home. It's okay to stay home if Mother's Day is painful for you. And just thought, if you feel sick, don't go to the doctor. Really? If you're hurting, avoid going and hearing from God's Word with God's people. No, God has given us these means for our sanctification, the church being one of them the preaching of God's word, the fellowship of the believers. So how lightly do we treat this? Is it something that we just decide, God, here is a gift you gave to me in order for me to be more like Christ, but I've got a better way than you. That's complacency. Complacency is exactly what the church at Sardis was dealing with. There's good and bad news in this. The bad news is that every one of us likely struggles with this. You likely struggle with this. Maybe I should stop being soft and not say likely. You struggle with this. Right? You struggle with becoming complacent in your spiritual life. You struggle with taking for granted what it means to follow Jesus. I'm confident of that because I know I do and I know all, I've talked to most of you and you would be willing to say that. We struggle with this. But the good news, if we all know we have a problem, the good news is we all have a problem. We're not alone. We're not the only people. And that is true, not just in this room. It is true across history. We go all the way back to the church at Sardis and we have a church that has a problem. They are asleep. They're dead. They're not accomplishing anything. So what does God have to say about complacency? Let's look at this letter. Who's it written to? Verse number one. To the angel of the church at Sardis write, uh, the words of, of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this is to the angel of the church at Sardis uh, likely the messenger of the church at Sardis. What's Sardis? Sardis is the capital of a region called Lydia. One of the significant characteristics of Sardis is it was a great military stronghold. Uh, geographically, it was well situated to be defensible. It's on a plateau, and so you, there's kind of one entrance, and so you can focus all your defense on this one entrance, and no one can get to you. No one can get around you, and it doesn't matter how big an army is. If there's a million people against a thousand people, but there's a six-foot door to walk through, that, that, that difference of number is greatly reduced in significance. And so Sardis is a city like this, with a fortress. It's easily defended because of the geography, because it's located on top of this mountain. However, this city also had a history 
of exactly what we're talking about, complacency. Croesus was king of Lydia, headquartered in Sardis. And he was going to war with Cyrus, the king of Persia. You re may remember Cyrus from the Old Testament. This is the guy who's king of Persia who allows the Jews to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple. Same guy. Keep in mind, Bible history happens in the same world as real history because Bible history is real history. So all this stuff is happening at the same time. Cyrus and Croesus go to war. Croesus actually is victorious against Cyrus but then decides to chase him down and tries to kind of uh, drop the mic after beating him in battle. And uh, Cyrus is a much bigger, has a much bigger army. So Cyrus turns around and chases Croesus back to Sardis. So they get back into their fortress. They're very confident. They're in there. They know they can stand, withstand uh, the Persians for a very long time. Eventually the soldiers of Persia would get bored and they'd all go home and they'd be safe. That was their mentality. However, as the Sardians are confident in their fortifications, knowing that no one can get into their city except by that one entrance, overnight, a column of Persian soldiers climbed the rock wall, one at a time, just hand over hand, doing the whole rock climbing thing. They get up and they make the city fall. It was said that even one child could have defended that wall from attack. One child with a handful of stones could have gotten rid of this long row of people climbing up the mountainside. But they were so confident in what they had and, and their defense that they did not even bother to have a lookout on the wall. So the city falls. 350 years later, Antiochus the Great attacks Sardis and wins the exact same way. They did not learn the first time. And so the next time, well, not the next time, but 350 years later, there's a battle, and Antiochus takes some troops. They climb the rock walls, and the city falls from within because they had grown complacent in guarding the city. And we'll see some of this referenced as we get into the letter. So, it's written to this church at Sardis. It's written by Jesus, as all these letters are. The angels of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, this idea he has the seven spirits, it's not really clear exactly what the spirits are referring to. Um, perhaps it's a, a reference to the life-giving power of the spirit. The spirit is the one who moves across the face of the earth in creation. The spirit is the one who gives life. And so we're talking to a dead church. That's possibly why that reference is there. Uh, <coughs> the one who holds the seven stars, the one who, um, who has the seven stars, rather. There's this idea of possession, Jesus holding the seven churches. We see in chapter 1, the seven stars are the churches. So uh, the church at Sardis is held by Christ. It is his possession. And so Christ is writing this letter to them. And he gives them a condemnation. I know your works. In the previous letters, that's the start of a commendation rather than a condemnation. In the previous letters, it's I know your works and then something good that they're doing. But here, Jesus says, I know your works. What are they? You have the reputation, you have the name of being alive, but you are dead. 
know your works. You have the name. You are called Christian. You are called alive. That's what your name is. That's what your reputation is. But in reality, you are actually dead. You're dead. Why? How are they dead? We have to skip ahead a little bit to verse number two, the second half of verse number two. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So the works of the church at Sardis, they claim to be alive. They're actually dead. How do we know that? Because their works are not complete. So we've got a church that claims to be following Christ, but in reality, and what they're actually doing, they're not accomplishing anything for Christ. Their works are incomplete. They make the claim to being Christian, they make the claim to being alive, but in reality, they are actually dead. They claim to be born again, but their behavior fits a description of death rather than their own claims. It is possible for a Christian to think very highly of their faithfulness, to think very highly of their position in Christ, while at the same time is thinking so well of themselves, they're failing to live like a Christian at all. It's possible, and it happens throughout history, and it happened in Sardis. They were lacking works that would be complete. To really complete the picture of what they were lacking, and this is always the challenge in these letters, is we only have so much detail. We don't have a biography of the church at Sardis. We don't know all the specifics. But in order to totally see what the problem is, let's start looking at the solution. First half of verse number two. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Because they are actually dead, Jesus is going to give them five responsibilities. First of all, wake up. Now here's where we really get their problem in its clearest terms. They, how does he know they're dead? Their works aren't complete. They're, they're asleep. They're complacent. Just like the city guards guarding the castle at Sardis hundreds of years before and hundreds of years again before that, just like at those times... Someone was supposed to be guarding the city and they fell asleep. They weren't paying attention. They were confident. They were comfortable. They weren't worried about what was going on. The church at Sardis has that same complacency. And so Jesus says to them, quite simply, wake up. The church, like the castle guards, was complacent. They were asleep. And Jesus says, get to work. It is easy to build our little castle in the church and become comfortable just living here, just existing here, identifying with a culture of Christianity that comes with, it, with a built-in kind of social group uh, of friends and family at church, uh, maybe uh, a church that shares a lot of the same opinions that we have about the world so we can come to church and we can sit down and we can hear someone tell us how wonderful we are and how terrible everything is outside the church so that we can feel superior to the world around us and we can just sit here and be comfortable living in the castle of the church just like the Sardesians sat in their castle and were comfortable just saying, look, we've got these great walls, what a beautiful place to live, we don't need to worry about anything, no one's going to bother us. The Sardesians missed out on the idea that they were in a life or death situation. The enemy was at the gate. The enemy was trying to come in. The enemy might not come through the front door. He might come through the back door. 
And the church does the same thing. We are happy to sit on our pews and point at the world around us and say how wicked they are, but how rarely do we honestly look in the mirror and say, God, I am a sinner, I am saved by grace, but that old man is still alive and fighting within me. How rarely do we open the Bible and say, this is talking to me. I am the one with the problem. The church at Sardis was more than happy to see the problems outside themselves and just think of themselves as being alive, of being healthy, of being in such a great situation, safe in their castle. So Jesus says, wake up. Jesus says, strengthen what remains. Establish what remains. Build up what remains. The life that you do have, those last vestiges of life left in the church, Sardis, build them up. Fan the fire. Know what you are. Look to yourselves and start building the church rather than relying upon what you think about what the church is. Build the church. This was a church that at one time knew and believed the gospel of Jesus, but at the time that this was written, had basically just forgotten it. They were nothing but a church in name. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you received and heard. The gospel in order to strengthen their remaining life, they needed to understand the life they once had. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be remembered in the church. I must be reminded, I am a sinner. God sent Christ as a Savior. That is the very foundation of what we're doing day to day. It's not the first part. It's not only the first part of our Christianity. It is our Christian life recognizing we are sinners in need of a Savior. And in Christ, we have that Savior. In Christ, we have that righteousness. And so we live differently as a result. The gospel fuels how we raise our children. The gospel fuels how we relate to one another in the church. The gospel fuels how we look for a pastor. The gospel fuels how we love our wife. The gospel fuels all of this because we recognize this is life or death. This is a big deal. We are in danger if we are careless with the gospel. Remember what you received and heard. Number four, he says, keep it, protect it. It's not just enough to know the gospel. Their lives must also demonstrate the gospel. It must be kept. The gospel must affect their church life. They are more than a social club. They are more than people who just call themselves Christians. The gospel must affect their life. And repent. Repent. There must be change. We cannot live like the church at Sardis, content to call ourselves Christians while looking only at the world outside and not looking at ourselves and our own need to serve the Lord, our own need to repent, our own need to live out the gospel. We cannot be comfortable and complacent within the castle of Christ's church. Like the rest of the letters, there's also a consequence. What's going to happen if they don't change? Verse Number three, second half. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know, not know at what hour I will come against you. So again, keeping in mind, this is a city whose minds would recall the fact that they slept and they were conquered. Apparently not well enough because it happened twice. Keep in mind that that's, that's part of their history as a city. He's saying, be ready. Because I'm coming like a thief at night. You know, it's interesting here. What's the opposition to the church at Sardis? 
What are they needing to be worried about, be on guard for? In previous churches, we had false teachers, the Nicolaitans, Jezebel, uh, lovelessness. But what is it that Sardis most needs to be worried about? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Be ready. Do not be complacent. Be ready. They might think there's nothing to be worried about because the government doesn't seem to be a problem here. The false teachers don't seem to be a problem here. There's no obvious earthly dangers like the other churches facing persecution, facing false teachers. There's, none of that is here. They might feel safe, but in their safety, they are not recognizing that the greatest enemy of a complacent church is Jesus himself who cares about his church, who will not quietly and lightly allow that church to just exist as a social club, to just exist as people who are Christian in name only. They must repent because Jesus is the one climbing the walls. Jesus is the one coming when they aren't expecting him. And that motivates them to keep the gospel, to repent, to remember the things that they have learned. And if they do change, what's going to happen? Again, following the same pattern of the rest of the letters. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. So not everyone was like this. What's going to happen to those people? And then I'd also say that that would include those who follow the guidelines here and do repent. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, purity, walking with Christ. I will never blot his name. So here we go. We're back to the name again. They call themselves Christian. But if they are faithful, if they conquer, if they are faithful to the end, if they hold on to the gospel of Christ, Jesus gives them a name and it will never be blotted out. There's this temporariness in the name they call themselves. But when Jesus calls them by name, it is permanent. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What a beautiful sentence. Jesus will confess the name of those who do not soil their garments, of those who overcome, of those who conquer, of those who are not merely Christians in name only. Jesus will confess their name before God. Jesus, standing before God, says your name to God. Says, that's one of mine. My righteousness is his. He stands before you, holy, justified. My name on the lips of Christ. How can I be complacent about that? How can I think that's not a big deal? The one who speaks the world into existence, the one who has existed for all time, the one who is perfect and holy and loving and just and righteous, omnipotent, omniscient, our great God, and out of his lips comes my name. That is not something to think little of. That is not something to go to sleep on. That is life and death. That is everything. That's what's available. We must continue. We must hold fast to Christ. We must be Christians in more than name. We must be ready. So how might we be complacent like this? How might we need to apply this? How might you specifically need to apply this? Are you complacent in your own spiritual growth? 
Are you taking care to use all the means that Christ has given you for you to grow to be like him? He's like a thief. He's coming. You don't know when. They didn't know when 2,000 years ago. We don't know when now. But he is coming. Are you ready? Are you laboring so that you can be presented as a spotless bride? Are you taking care to practice the spiritual disciplines? Are you faithful to church? Are you faithful in uh, knowing God's word? Are you faithful in prayer? It's life and death. Are you taking care to practice the benefits, to enjoy the benefits of being a part of the community of Christ and the church? Does your church attendance, does your frequency of, of attending church speak to the fact that you know that being a Christian is life and death? That you know this matters more than anything? That you know that Christ is the most significant part of your life? Or does your church attendance communicate that, yeah, that's, that's kind of an important thing. That, that matters, but also other things matter as well. And so... What, what, what's that, what's, what are you saying? What, what do you think about the significance of Christ? How does your church attendance reflect that? How does your participation with the body of Christ outside of Sunday morning church reflect that? If God said we need the church, if Christ gave us the church to be a fellowship together, if we're supposed to be stirring up one another to good works and being stirred up to good works, how are you practicing that? It's life and death. Jesus is coming again. And he has very strong words for those who are Christian in name only, but just complacently sit on the sidelines. Do you recognize that when you look in the mirror, you see someone who needs to be discipled? Do you recognize you see someone who needs to be stirred up to good works? Or do you think your only role is to be the one stirring up others to good works? Do you recognize your need for the body of Christ? to encourage you, to confront you, to love you and care for you? Are you too proud? Are you too proud to see that you need other people? You need Christ's church. Are you so complacent and comfortable that you think it's an option for other people? Do you love this church enough to work for the good of the church? Does this church matter, recognizing this is written to an entire church that's supposed to be living this way? Do you care about the rest of the people in this room enough to do something about this? Do you see needs in the church and fill them on the front end, not the back end? Getting out in front and saying, here's a need, I'm going to step in and I'm going to fill that need. Not talking about criticism after everything's said and done. I'm saying, are you willing to step up and say, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to be the one to stand up, and if it goes badly and people are mad at me, that's okay. Are you willing to do that? There are many opportunities for that in the next few months. Are you willing to step up and say, man, this is risky. I am busy, but this is the church that Christ died for, and it is more important than other things in my life. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to sacrifice for Christ's church, 
by taking responsibility, taking leadership, being willing to take some hits in order to do what is right, being willing to sacrifice in order to do what benefits the church that Christ loves. That's faith. Faith isn't sitting back in the back seat and waiting for God to do something. Faith is the ability to obey knowing that God will do what he has promised. Read Hebrews 11. Look at the hall of faith. How many of those people were sitting on their duffs saying, well, I just need God to do something. And how many of them were saying, yeah, go ahead, execute me. Faith is not passively sitting on the sideline and hoping everything works out. Faith is the active obedience to God, knowing that he will be faithful. He will keep the promises that he has made to us. How about with your family? Are you complacent with your children, with your spouse? Or are you discipling them, recognizing, I, I keep saying this is life and death. This is more than life and death. This is eternal life and death. The church is in the business of eternity. It is longer than the next 60 years. 60 years seems like a long time. This is eternity on the line. It is not something to be complacent about. It is not something to sit on the sidelines and hope for the best. Fathers, you are responsible to raise your children, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I confess that sometimes I just want my kids to turn out to not be psychopaths. Yet, I am called to want them to love Christ. And so many times I just feel that, that tension, like, I, I recognize sometimes I just don't care that my kids love Jesus. I care that they don't make me look stupid. I care that they're, they're mostly successful in life. But, oh man, what am I missing there? How, how, how short does that come? This is eternal life and death on the line. Fathers, be ready, be awake, understand the cost. Mothers, understand the cost. Understand what is on the line as you raise your children. Do not be apathetic in your home. Commit to teaching your children the word of God. Just decide, we're not going to sleep at night until we spend time in God's word together. I, I hope we recognize that would be a good thing, right? I think we all know that would be a good thing. Make that a commitment in your family. Life and death, eternal life and death are on the line. It is not a time to sit on the sidelines and say, boy, I hope God takes care of all the responsibilities he's given me. Take responsibility for raising your children, for serving your church, for repenting of sin in your own heart. What would this look like in our church? Well, the opportunity is there, particularly in our church right now. The need is there as this church adjusts to a season of not having a pastor. I hope that everyone takes seriously the responsibility you have to one another. Churches are supposed to have pastors, right? That's pretty clear biblically. We don't see examples of churches not having pastors. It's not good for a church to go a long time without a pastor. Yet in that time when there is no pastor, does that mean that none of the work of discipleship and care for one another gets done? Or does that mean now is the time for me to step up 
and do the stuff that needs to get done. And here's the great thing. You don't actually have to stop doing that when you get a pastor. You can continue that work of saying, this body matters, and I'm not going to sleep on it. I'm not going to get complacent. I'm going to invest in this body. Not, and, and then when a new pastor comes, you're still investing in this body. When a new pastor comes, you don't need to give up all the things that you've taken on over the time when there wasn't a pastor. Instead, you can continue to invest, to not be complacent, to not be comfortable, and instead be sold out for the good of the church because it is Christ's church, and he died for it, and he loves it, and he expects you to be a part of it. One caution as you take on responsibilities in the next month, don't hold on to them when someone else comes out of pride. Be willing to give them up for the good of the church, but take seriously that role of making disciples, that role of being a servant, a servant who sacrifices. Maybe sacrifices more than between the hours of 9.30 and 12 o'clock on Sunday morning. Take on those roles and take them on seriously. Evaluate your schedule. Are the things that you are doing that are stopping you from being able to serve others in Christ's church actually more important? Are they more important? Or are they just easier, more comfortable, more profitable from a, a human perspective? Evaluate your schedules. Evaluate your lives. The church needs active, awake, alive people to serve each other, to serve Christ, to be obedient. Jesus is coming again. That is the recurring theme in each of these letters. There's these warnings. Jesus says, I'm coming. Let me come in a good way, not in a bad way. It's like the difference between when I come home and my kids are in daddy's home mode or wait till your dad gets home mode. All right? There's two ways that I might be greeted at the door. Jesus is coming back again. Is he coming back? Jesus is coming. Or Jesus is coming. Which one is it? That's what this labor is for. And God has given us the church. God has given us the body of believers. God has given us families. God has given us spiritual disciplines. These are all means that God has given so that when Jesus comes back, it's a joyous occasion. We welcome him with open arms instead of cowering in fear like Adam and Eve do in the garden when God comes after the fall. So work, sacrifice, wake up, repent of your complacency, be alive. Because Jesus is coming again.